0: thank you that we get to be a church family that we get opportunities to care for one another and uh, get to be in relationships with each other and get to open up your word and see how you want to direct us and guide us and god will you guide each one of our hearts each one of us have different things happening in our lives and you want to speak a truth to us today and you're going to supernaturally do that will you open us to that don't let any of us be hardened to the word you have for us right now even in this moment, if it's the only time we've ever been open to the word, open our hearts. And for some of us that are eager to grow, grow us and shape us and use us to have a, a, an impact for your kingdom unlike we've ever had in our Christian journey before. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, it was Socrates that once said that the unexamined life is not even worth living. And so we can talk about that and wax eloquently, but I want to get real practical at the beginning because I read a statement like that, and I think to myself, isn't it ironic that so many of us can be unaware, right? Have you ever seen people that are unaware, and you think, how can they be so unaware? And then do you ever ask yourself the question, am I? Am I unaware of things? And we've probably all done stuff before that reveals our lack of awareness, lack of social awareness. We say dumb things. I, I do that all the time. My mouth goes faster than my head so many times, which is ironic for the job that I have, right? And then you've got different things that maybe you've done. Have you ever had something stuck in your teeth when you're talking to somebody, and they didn't tell you? They're not your friend, just so you know. If they want to, I've gone in the bathroom before. It's like, like that one time I ate broccoli, right? Like I ate broccoli. Another reason I ate broccoli. It gets stuck in your teeth. And it gets broccoli stuck in your teeth, and it's in there, and you look, and then I automatically think to myself, "You knew, you, Alan, you knew you didn't tell me. Like you don't even care about me in that situation. Or have you ever had this experience? You smell something, and you think that smells bad, and then you realize it's you. <laughs> I was thinking about that this week. I remember at a time when I was in junior high and middle school, seventh grade, which is an awkward time, anyways, right? Like you're trying to figure life out and just want to work and everything's not working. And, And I remember sitting in a class and thinking, that smells terrible. What is it? And looking around. And about the time I was about to be offended, I realized it was my shoes and they smelled like they'd been soaked in a sewer. And about the moment I realized that, the young lady behind me realized it too and said something about it, which was highly embarrassing for me and very humorous for all of my friends. (laughs) I was unaware. We can be unaware in lots of ways. I shared with you, I think, recently about how I'm a heavy sleeper. And so when we had each one of our babies, my wife actually caused tension in our marriage because she thought that I was pretending to sleep through them waking up in the middle of the night. I wasn't pretending. I was just sleeping through them, getting up in the middle of the night. I saw one of them came down to our room uh, last night at like 4 o'clock in the morning. I didn't wake up. At 5, I woke up and then I realized, oh, a kid has been in this room, has happened here. And my wife was telling me that earlier in the week, our four year old came in and she was crying. She was upset. Now, usually when she's upset, it means she had a bad dream, there was an accident, one of her sisters is throwing up upstairs. Like something serious is ta- happening in that moment. This time she's crying and she says, I need my lizard which is strange. We don't have a pet lizard. But we had bought her a little plastic one at the dollar store at one time, and apparently it became really important at 3.30 in the morning. And so she comes to my wife and says, I need my lizard. She's crying. My wife's like, what are you even talking about? You can't say to a four-year-old, do you know what time it is? Because you know what they'll say back? No. They're unaware. You can't say, that's not important. You don't need that to sleep. You're not going to have a rational conversation. She lacks awareness. We all lack awareness at times. And sometimes it's silly stuff, these social awareness type things. Sometimes we lack awareness and it's, it's more serious. Have you ever seen those situations where maybe every once in a while if you read ESPN or check the sports page, there'll be some story of an athlete, high school, professional, some level, and they died and they had a heart condition and they didn't even know it. I mean, it can be like marathon runners or basketball players, like people that are in peak physical condition. And then they die unaware that they had a heart condition. Or you bump into somebody and you talk to them. Maybe you haven't seen them in years. They look great. You think they're doing awesome. And you find out two weeks later their body's filled with cancer. I didn't know it. They're unaware. And it's deadly. What we're going to talk about today is more serious than that. Because it's about after death. What we're talking about today is something that ironically we can be more unaware of. We're talking about spiritual Awareness. And whether or not we're spiritually aware of our true heart condition, because the reality is most of us think our hearts are better off than they are. And I'll give you an overview of the passage we're going to look at today. It's a parable, which is Jesus telling a story. And what he does is he tells a story, an earthly story, and he puts heavenly meaning in it. And oftentimes it has to do with the setting that he's in. So he's in a farming-type setting, agricultural setting, and so he'll use farming analogies. It would be equivalent to me saying, imagine that you were at a movie. And then I gave some spiritual truth that went to you going into a movie. That's the way that he'll oftentimes teach. And so the first nine verses of what we're going to read today is just him telling a story. Verses 10, 11, and 12, he gives the reason why he tells these kinds of stories. Then in verses 13 through 20, which is where we're going to spend most of our time, he interprets the story that he's just told. And what he does when he interprets it is he tells about four different types of hearts. And he's challenging his disciples, what kind of heart do you have? What kind of hearts do the people that you're sharing the gospel with have? So you can know what's happening in their hearts, so you can be aware. And so the Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living, becomes relevant. And if you want this message to have the effect that God desires for it to have in your life, you've got to ask yourself, what kind of heart am I? And I'll just share with you, I was reading a message. I preached this passage about 10 years ago, and I was reading it. And one of the mistakes I made was saying that the, each one of the hearts is a static condition. Like there's a hard heart, shallow heart, distracted heart, and good heart. Those, that's, the, that's your outline already. And what it is, I would say either you have a hard heart, or you have a shallow heart, or you have a distracted heart, or you have a good heart. And the reality is, life is dynamic. That's one of the things I've learned in the last 10 years. You're not just one. We shift categories. And you see that in the scripture too, because the very disciples that he's speaking to, who left everything to come follow him, seems like a good heart, Right? There's two times in the book of Mark where he says, Are your hearts hard? Why is your heart so hard? The same guys that are willing to leave everything and follow him. And so we shift categories. The question for you is, Which category is most like you? And only the Spirit can reveal that to you because you'll always think better of yourself than his reality. And so we're going to jump into the passage. And what's happening here is Jesus is really popular. Remember where he was at in chapter three? He was so popular, he was in a house, and the house was so packed that he couldn't even eat. Well, now he goes outside, and look at what it says in Mark chapter 4, and verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large, he got into a boat and sat in it. And so he needs a floating stage in order to speak to folks. And he's got acoustics because he's got water behind him, and so the large crowd that's there, he's able to speak to this large crowd without even having a microphone, he got into a boat, and he sat in it on the lake. Well, all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And try and put yourself in the place of Jesus teaching to this super huge crowd. What do you know about Jesus? We know that Jesus can read people's minds. We saw that in Mark chapter 2 when people were thinking, no one can forgive sins. And he knew what they were thinking. He started having a conversation with them. Wouldn't that mess you up? Somebody just starts talking to you about what you're thinking. Whoa, like trying to clear your mind. We see Psalm 139 says that God knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our motives. He can see right to our heart. So try and put yourself in the place of Jesus, who's totally aware of everyone's spiritual condition. And he looks out and he sees this huge crowd. Some white-collar folks, some working-class folks, some unemployed people. Some people that are physically in good health, some people that are dying of diseases. Marriages that are doing well, marriages that are falling apart, that are hanging on by a string. He sees all of it. There's one place where Jesus, it's in Mark later, we'll get to it, where he looks out and he sees a large crowd. And he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd, herding and helpless. The language for hurting and helpless is they've been ravaged and left for dead on the side of the road like a woman who's been raped and left for dead. What do you think Jesus sees when he looks out and he sees all these hearts? And then maybe he sees a farmer sowing seed. Because look at what it says in verse 2. Verse 2 says, he taught them many things by parables. Those stories he was talking about. And his teaching said, and in his teaching said, listen. Key word. What he's saying is be aware. Pay attention. Wake up if you're not listening. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he scattered the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and they ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed, third kind, fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Verse 8, still others... The seed, they fell on good soil. It came up and grew and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, even 100 times what was sown into it. And that's his story. And at the end of the story in verse 9, he says the same thing he said at verse, 1, or at the verse 3 when he started it. When he said, listen, look at verse 9. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention. Be aware. Now let me tell you why I teach him parables. And he changes scenes. No longer is he out at the shore and teaching a large crowd. Look at verse 10 verse 10 when he was alone wasn't totally alone the 12 were with him and some other people so it just wasn't this huge crowd that he was with but he was with this smaller group of his disciples they asked him about the parables look at what he says he told them the secret of the kingdom of god has been given to you but those on the outside and this is key and let this be a stimulus for you study in the book of mark on your own we saw this theme of inside and outside in chapter 3 and there was people that were inside. Remember those who do the will of God? They're my family. Those who are around me. Remember who was outside? It was his mom and his brothers. And his brothers don't get him. And they're trying to stop God's will. So there's, there's different people. Everybody's not the same. We like to say that. that's not true. The ones that are wanting to do his will are the ones that are on the inside. Who are the, who's he with now? He's with the 12 and some other people. It's those that are probing. They want to know the truth of this parable. Some people just heard the story. They liked hearing a nice story. And then they go on their way. It's pretty shocking what he says next. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Would you could read that and think, well, Jesus doesn't want them to be forgiven? Well, that's not true. We know that scriptures say all, all throughout. He's not willing that anyone would perish. He wants everyone to be forgiven. Those who are forgiven much love much. And you see, you talk about forgiveness. He wants them to be forgiven. He's quoting Isaiah 6. You must understand Isaiah 6, 9 and 10 in its context in order to understand this verse. To give you a summary of what's being said, he's urging people, many have hard hearts and will not listen no matter what gets said. And so in a sense, the parables reveal truth to those who get it, and it conceals truth to those who don't. But the reason why the statement's made in Isaiah is it's a provocative statement to urge people, you don't get it. So then they'll probe, well, help me understand. So they'll want to listen, so they'll want to hear, so they'll be aware. Then he says in verse 13, And Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? Let me tell you the answer. No. That's why they're asking the question, what do these parables mean? (laughs) Don't you understand? I just asked you, what do these parables mean? No, I don't get it. How then will you understand any parable? And what he's saying is what we're about to learn, what he's about to teach us is so utterly important. You, You won't understand the other parables unless you get this. And you won't understand why when you share God's truth with some people, they won't get it no matter how clear you make it unless you understand this parable. And he tells us about these four hearts. The first heart's in verses 14 and 15. It's the soil that falls on the path. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to tell us the meaning of the allegory that he's giving here. He's, he's sharing that there's somebody who sows the seed. That's the farmer. It's someone who shares God's word because he's going to tell us in just a minute that the seed is God's word. We read in Matthew's account that the soils are a heart. So with that in mind, look at verses 14 and 15. The farmer sows the word. Person who shares the truth. Some people are like seed along the path. That's the kind of heart they have. What is it? Where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes the word that was sown in them. It's gone. It has no effect whatsoever. What is the path? Well, the path is the road system. It's the roadway in Palestine, and it wouldn't be a. It wouldn't be quite like Glenwood Avenue or 540. It wouldn't be paved and nice, and even people working on it to keep making it paved and nice, which seems to be counterproductive. Whatever. Um, it's the It's the place where you would walk. It's the place where carts would come through. It's the place where animals would go. And what happens to that soil is it continually gets packed down more and more and more to the point where the surface is so hard that the seed just sits on the surface when you throw seed out. It's a hard heart. The first kind of heart that you need to be aware of, you're going to be spiritually aware, is you must be aware of the hard heart. The hard heart is the kind that the seed falls on it, and it said in verse 4, the birds come by, but we see in verse 14 and 15 here that the birds are symbolic of Satan. Satan comes by, and what do we see again? We see again that when God's at work planting a seed, telling the truth, Satan's also at work coming and trying to swoop and take it away from your life. The easiest heart for him to do that with is the hard heart, where the word just sits on the surface. It's the person who's indifferent to God's word. But you've got to ask yourself a question here when you look at this passage. Why would a farmer ever throw seed on the path? Because I'm not, I am not a green thumb. Like I can grow weeds. That's about it. I built a one time. I built a thing in our backyard. The kids use it now as like a dirt box, not a sandbox. Got dirt in it. I I had dreams of having tomatoes and stuff in it, and we got nothing. There's not. There aren't even weeds in it. It's got nothing in it. And so the kids just go and play in it and mess around, whatever. We have no tomatoes, no basil, none of the stuff I had, you know, vegetable fantasies of having out there. But. I know enough to know that if I take seed and I throw it on Briar Creek Parkway, Glenwood Avenue, 540, nothing's happening. It's not going to work. So why would a farmer, this is his job, this is how he makes his living, this is how he feeds his family. Why would he ever throw seed on the path? And before you think this is just a dumb farmer, you know, just <laughs> foolish for him to do this kind of thing, you've got to understand Palestinian farming. It's different than ours. There wasn't a big John Deere tractor that came through, tilled all the soil, and then seed shot out of the back of it got to remember he's doing it by hand, first of all. And then you've got to remember that the, the system that they had from me reading about the way the paths would go through Palestine, uh, it's not an organized city planning situation, like where everything's in this block and the 8th block and the ninth block and the 10th block. It's more like carry as far as the road systems are concerned. They're driven in carry. I'll be driving in carry and be like, I was on that road 20 minutes ago. It's named the same thing. It's just a different part of town. Or, and they're all kind of weaving around and doing all this stuff. Why can't you just let out in an organized fashion? We can figure this out. Anyway, That's what Carrie's like. There's enough ranting about Carrie. That's what the road systems were like then. And then we go right through the middle of fields. We see this when Mark is uh, sharing with us about the disciples. In Mark chapter 2, they're walking down the road, and they grab corn. Why? Because they're walking right through the middle of a field. And people were upset because they were doing work on the Sabbath by eating this corn, breaking it together in their own hands. And what's happening is there are pathways that go all through these farms, where the animals walk, where the feet trod, where people just are going through, and it packs the soil down and makes it hard. And so the farmer's taking seeds in his hand, not a big John Deere tractor, and he's throwing them out. And here's another significant thing to know about Palestinian farming. Oftentimes, they didn't plow the ground until after they sowed, until after they threw the seed out. And so this ground is all kinds of different ground that he's throwing at. So he's just throwing it everywhere. And the way that they would plow was also by hand. They'd come through and they'd basically aerate the ground. They'd come through and they'd just start poking holes in the ground. They didn't have big tractors that would till the soil. And so a farmer knows that if he throws it on a pathway, that the bird's probably going to, before he's able to come through and plow the ground, the bird's going to come take it away. But it's just, it would be too hard to stop it from going there. And so seed does go there. But everyone knows it doesn't produce anything because the ground is too hard on top. What Jesus is talking about is a hard heart. And the hard heart in Scripture, sometimes we think of it as a skeptic who's angry at God. You know, why does this bad stuff happen? And they've got these arguments against God. It's the the person that, you know, argues why God's word isn't true. And, And that can be true, that they have a hard heart. But when you look at the Scriptures, what's being talked about is the person who's indifferent to what God's doing. They can see God do miracles. They can see God at work. And it still doesn't change their heart. It's the person who hears the gospel, can hear the gospel over and over and over. And it doesn't make any difference in their life. You see, Jesus first exposed it in Mark chapter 3. Do you remember the story that we talked about where there's a man with a shriveled hand? And the scribes probably planted him there. And what happens is that Jesus tells the guy to take his hand and stick it out, which is got, it's going to be terrible for this guy. This isn't a, you know, a life or death illness that he has. It's just embarrassing to have this shriveled hand. And Jesus has him pull it out in front of this whole crowd, but then it's healed. But Jesus is ticked when this happens. He says in Mark chapter, five, Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed. Why is he angry and why is he deeply distressed? At their stubborn hearts. Which could be translated hard hearts. Even after this guy's hand is healed, they don't rejoice. Hey, at least good news for that guy. And they're not even saying, we've got to stop this guy from doing so many good deeds. So their hearts are so hard, they're indifferent to what's happened. They just want to take care of their own life protect their own control, their own position. So they want Jesus dead. They begin to plot his death. And Jesus is mad that it doesn't matter what I do, your heart will not change. Because you have a hard heart. Hard heart means an indifferent heart. I saw one commentator I was reading this week uh, and likened it to uh, listening to a flight attendant on a plane. i Have never ever been on a plane before? If you've never been on a plane before, maybe you don't understand this. All of you have flown more than one time. Uh, You probably know exactly what I'm talking about when I say because when I think about, when I put it into my terms of what it's like to get out on a plane, think about what happens. The flight attendant, he or she gets up. Sometimes there's a recording. Sometimes they say it in person. They even seem disinterested in what they're saying sometimes, but nobody's paying attention. And what they're talking about is life and death stuff. And so they say, take your Bibles or take that sheet that's right out of the seat in front of you and take a look at it. And no one does that. People grab their phones, they grab the newspaper, they start talking to each other, whatever happens, and then think about what they start to share. You're about to precariously defy gravity and something that weighs about a ton, and you're going to be floating above mountains and ocean, and they're going to tell you, in case this doesn't work, here's what you need to know. And we don't care. And we start looking. i got to get one more email done before she's done talking. I've gotta, you know, I, I wonder, I'm going to hop on YouTube real quick. Does your pet actually catch the red laser that you have it chasing around right now? Like we're looking at stuff that's so meaningless, and then she's talking about life and death stuff, and we don't care. Do you know why? Because we think it doesn't apply to us, at least not today. We hope. If it does, then all of a sudden that becomes the most important thing you've ever heard. But we just assume it doesn't. And many of us are that way with God's word. We think we want to hear That's why we came to church, right? But the reality is we just want to get it done so I can get to the next thing. And so then the gospel comes, and then it just sits there, and, it doesn't, and Satan takes it away. It has no effect in your life. I was talking with a friend yesterday. who was, We were talking about life, and I said, where are you at with Jesus? And he's been a friend, come to our church for a long time. He said, I'm, I'm still skeptical, which is his way of saying he has a hard heart. And I told him that. I said, no, you have a hard heart. He said, you hear the gospel over and over and over again, and you won't respond to it. Do you know what the danger of that is? you know what God has to do with a hard heart? Break it. And I told him, I said, I want you to trust Christ before you get broken. And he's going through some difficult stuff right now. I said, We're get to, what's the point? What point is it going to be? And he shared with me what he thought it was. I said, you want to trust Jesus days? No. That's a hard heart. But you know what? God loves a broken heart. He says it all throughout the Psalms. Psalm 34. He shares about the brokenness of our hearts. He says, the Lord is close to those that are brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 51, David writing after he gets caught in his sin with Bathsheba and then repents. He Says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. And so it might not be your heart all the time. But does God need to break your heart? Maybe break an area of your heart. I remember learning this lesson when I was in college. I was talking with a professor of mine at the time as a Bible professor and I was talking to him about sharing the gospel and I love sharing the gospel with people. I go to other colleges and share the gospel with people and talk to friends and strangers and just whoever because I have this news it's like the best news ever. I want people to know it and so their lives can be tra- changed like mine was. And I said, but the hardest people for me to share the gospel with are my family members. I said, the hardest person for me is my mom and I started to share with them. I said, I tried to share the gospel with my mom. Last time I did, she thought I was telling her she was a bad mom. which That wasn't my intention at all but it just went poorly. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with somebody who's just like, this isn't working. Like, it's not going well. And so that's how it was for me. And he said to me, Scott, why don't you pray that God brings circumstance into her life, makes her sensitive to the gospel? Which I thought, that sounds like a great idea. I prayed it that night. The next morning, I got a call from my mom telling me that my dad had a heart condition he wasn't aware of. They had to care flight him to a university hospital by our house at the time. I remember thinking, why did I pray that? I went to the hospital, and the guy who led me to Christ who my, my mom had thought that he was like um, a cult leader or something, and that he was, because he was older than me, that he was going to have me, you know, cut off my family and kind of, you know, manipulate me or whatever. That's not what he did. He's the best news in the world he shared with me, and he taught me how to study the Bible. And I'll tell you, if you're a Christian and you've never had a mentor, go to somebody and ask them to mentor you, because I just went to him and said, I don't know the Bible. Teach me the Bible. And I remember that day sitting in a waiting room with my wife, and she was my fiancé and uh, my little brother and my mom and that guy, my mentor. My mentor shared the gospel with my mom for five hours. And she was more receptive than she had ever been before. And I look back on that and think, well, I'll definitely pray that for people that I want to come to Christ because I'd rather they go through difficulty here on earth than not know Jesus and stand before God in eternity. So, of course, I want their hearts to be broken. But then the question becomes for me, but will I pray to my own life? God, break me in areas where there's things you're trying to teach me and I'm just not getting it. Break me. Will you pray for brokenness in your own heart? Some of you are not believers it's because you have a hard heart and you're not receptive to the news that Jesus died for you. He gives you eternal life, and you won't receive that eternal life because your heart is hard. Will you ask God to break your heart? Some of you are believers and you've got areas where you know you're not obedient or maybe you're unaware of because you're so indifferent. Will you ask God to break your heart if that's what needs to happen? Because I'm hesitant to do it. I'll be honest with you. I don't, I don't want that. I just, like, can we, Is there like an easy way where you can just make it like happen? No bad circumstances, please. Well, that's not how it works. Does your heart need to be broken? The first heart to be aware of is a hard heart. second heart to be aware of is a shallow heart. And he talks about that in the next couple verses. So verses 14 and 15 are the hard heart. Verses 16 and 17 are the shallow heart. If you have your Bibles, verses 16 and 17. Others, like seeds sown on rocky. And you might think, well, no, that's the hard heart because it says rocky, but that's not the emphasis here. Look at the rest of the verse. Others, seeds sown on rocky places, they hear the word and at once receive it with joy. And so they're different than the indifferent heart. The indifferent. The word comes out, makes no difference. Got to get to lunch, got to watch the game, got to do the thing. This is the person, they hear the word, they're pumped. Yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm all out for Jesus. It's a person who trusts Jesus, but then a couple days later, they don't even want to go to church. The a person that they're, they're, I'm going on the mission field, but I got a lot of other stuff I need to do first. It's they're, they're excited, but then look what happens. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. What we're talking about here is the shallow heart. The context for Jesus sharing this parable again, the Palestinian agricultural community, was that the the, the land there wasn't all rocky in the sense that there were rocks sitting on top, like there was, you know, pebbles on top of the, the earth, but there was a two or three inch thick soil, and underneath it was a limestone, like a bedrock of limestone, just a whole bunch of rock. And when I read that this week, I, I thought to myself, it's like my backyard. <laughs> I've tried to plant multiple trees in my backyard, and I've actually done it, but usually what it is, it's not digging as much as it's unearthing rocks and then pulling them out, because I'll go out there, I'll jump on the shovel, it goes about two or three inches into the ground, hits a rock, ding, and it makes a noise, you know, ding, and then throws me out, I'll jump back on the shovel, and it goes nowhere, just knocks you out of the shovel, and I'll pull it up, I'm going to move that rock out of the way, and then wedge another rock out of the way, and I'm pretty sure there was a rock quarry there at some time before my house got built. Because it's all there's but, there's, but there's actually grass there. And there's, there's stuff that's growing on the surface. And what happens is, when you have two or three inch thick soil, is that you throw the seed in, and it's warm, and it's moist. And it grows up right away, but there's no root. And what it's talking about is the person who has an immediate response to Jesus, and they're pumped about it, but they don't stick with it. It's the shallow heart, like a shallow soil. And you see it all through the scripture. You see continual references. People coming to Jesus and say, I'm going to follow you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you, Luke chapter 9. And Jesus says, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. The guy's gone. You never hear of him again. Jesus comes to another guy. Hey, you come follow me. He says, oh, first let me go bury my dad. Jesus says, no, you let the dead bury the dead. Let the spiritually dead bury the dead. You, I got kingdom work for you. He doesn't go. Got another guy. He says, first let me go take goodbye to of my family. He wants his inheritance. Remember, Jesus looks right to their hearts. He knows those guys are all shallow soil. They're not willing to count the cost of following Jesus. You see people in the story that we did the Easter not too long ago. Palm Sunday, what are people singing? Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. land Palm branches down as Jesus comes into town. Those same people, days, not years, days later, are standing outside of Pilate's palace. As Jesus is on trial and Pilate's not finding any crime in him, and, Jesus, and Pilate comes out with Jesus... And says, What do you want me to do with this Jesus? And they chant, Crucify Him. Same people that days earlier were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, from the same lips. How does that happen? And you know what happens next? Is that Pilate says, well, What crime has he done? And you know what they say? Not a crime. All the louder the scripture said they chanted, Crucify Him, Crucify Him. Why? Shallow hearts. Some religious leaders had gotten in the crowd sort of saying, you can't crucify him. Here's, this guy's, he's blasphemy. Here's, this guy's, he's not really a miracle. You shouldn't follow this guy. And so the religious leaders start a ruckus amongst the crowd and so they're easily swayed. They've got no root. It's like Rob was talking about when he was sharing his testimony, his Celebrity Recovery testimony, that he's going to share the rest of on Thursday night. He's talking about you know difficult times. I had trusted Jesus, but it wasn't, there was no root. He wasn't rooted in God's word. And so what happens? Difficulty comes, and it will come in this life. For some of us, it would be like the Middle East and there'll be persecution for some of us. It'll be other circumstances come that are far more subtle. But notice in the text, verse 17, what it said. Notice the wording is important. But since they have no root, they last only a short time, this next word is not if. If trouble comes, no, it's when. When trouble comes, it will come. Some of you know our family's been going through a tough time. I won't share all the details of that again. Uh, You can go back a couple weeks ago and hear some of our story but we've been talking about it with our kids. And I, sure, I asked you, and you've been great about not talking to our kids about it, so thank you. We've been having some tough conversations with our kids as a result. And the other night, we were at the dinner table, and we had had a difficult conversation about things we wish we didn't have to talk about. And when we were done, I said, does anybody have a prayer request? Now, let me just stop and say this. I don't usually run dinner like it's a small group, okay? <laughs> In fact, I said to her, I said, you know, does anybody have a prayer request? One of the kids said, what's a prayer request? I was like, well. If you've got something you want us to pray about, tell us what that is. And uh, we went around the table, and different ones were sharing differently. They all had to do with the same topic. And, and uh, we got to Janie. Janie's our, our third child, and she is just a bottle of joy. Okay? She, you, want, you want to have fun? She, Janie is ready to have fun. She wishes life was just a dance party, big eyes, big old smile. She's just happy about everything, ready to help everybody, super friendly. Her prayer request is, Dad, pray that nothing bad ever happens to our family again. To which I want to say, Okay, honey, but I know enough of the Bible to know that Jesus already promised that bad things are going to happen. And so I don't need to pray a prayer where I already know the answer to the prayer, and the answer is no. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. So I tell my daughter, I say, I can't, I can't pray that, honey. I just Jesus tells us there's going to be trouble in this world. she immediately, her head just a, hits the table. She's devastated at that moment. The rest of the verse just pop up on the screen. And that's what you get to teach. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, which means have courage. Why can I have courage? I have overcome the world, and you have me, right? So that means this. Anything that happens in this world is temporary. At bat, it could be the worst, most horrific thing you ever think of. It won't last forever. It's just here. And Jesus has overcome this world because Jesus is stronger. Amen? He's overcome the world. He's overcome death. He's overcome the devil. He's overcome disease. He's overcome it all. And we've got him. And those who are shallow, when the difficult times come, they're gone. But do you know what happens to a plant or tree that's strong, that has roots? When the difficult time comes, the roots go deeper. They get stronger. Do you know what happens to a believer who's rooted in God's word? Is that when the difficult times come, It may be. You might, just like the hurricane bends the tree, you might be shaken, but your roots go deeper. Your faith becomes more real. And so some of you might be shallow hearts. You might have a pattern of a, you start stuff and you don't finish it. What you need to do is grow a, a love for God's word. What if I don't love God's word? Taste and see that God is good and you'll develop an appetite for his word and you'll grow deeper. And so then when the difficult times come, you live more by the promises, the roots keep going down. First application, your heart might need to be broken. Second application, you desire God's word. Get in God's word and live by his promises. Third heart you need to be aware of is what I'll call today the the distracted heart. Now, it could be called the crowded heart. It could be called the, uh, I've seen other people call it the materialistic heart. You can call it lots of different things, but let me read to you the description here, and you'll see why. Verses 18 and 19. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And so it's it's like the second heart in the sense that you want fruit to be there, but you're divided. There's other stuff. It could be called the divided heart. It's divided. There's other stuff there. The reason why I call it the distracted heart is because it gave those three descriptions, the worries of this life and uh, the deceitfulness of wealth and and all the different things that could distract you. But that first phrase in there when it said the worry, but in verse 19, the very first phrase, but the worries of this life could literally be translated the distractions of this age. And what are those? We could open mic it here and we could just come up. Everybody could give at least one. There's like hundreds of distractions in this world think about all the things that we're distracted by. I already mentioned, you know, watching a YouTube video, Facebook, email, all that stuff. Sometimes it's funny to talk about the distractions. Have you ever done where you're like not paying attention, you bump into something? Sometimes they'll put videos on YouTube of people in the mall, mall security. They must get in trouble for this, but they release the videos of people like looking on their phone and they'll fall into like a fountain or something. And it's hilarious. If you're not the one holding the phone. (laughs) I read one this week that was not hilarious. It was about a guy who fell off of a cliff. He, was, he pulled up with his family, and he was trying to on a lookout point, and there wasn't a parking spot, so he was walking around. They said he was looking at a device. He fell off the cliff 60 feet. People performed CPR on him. He died. He died of distraction. That's my mon, non-medical diagnosis, by the way. You probably—you know, I don't know if it was brain injury. I don't know what it was, falling down that cliff. But he wouldn't have fallen down that cliff if he had not been so distracted. We get so easily distracted as a society. And here, Jesus puts his finger on the thing that is the most distracting. It's not one that most of us would probably list. It's money. Look at what he says. He says, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness, why does he call money deceitful? Because it promises a stuff it won't deliver. It promises security. That's a false security. You may feel secure because you have a bunch of money. It can be gone like that, and all of it's just temporary here. it it leans us towards spiritually what it does to our hearts money leans us towards self-reliance that we think we have it under control you read through the scriptures you get lots of warnings about money in fact jesus talks about money more than he talks about heaven and hell he talks about money a lot you know why because he knows our hearts he says here there's a deceitfulness of wealth of money he tells us in another place in matthew chapter 6 you can't serve money in god he says in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. And that's just generally true about any two masters. But then he gets real poignant. He says, either he'll hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, by the way, for most people, it's this, money. So don't deceive yourselves. Unexamined life's not worth living. Be aware. Listen. Hey, pay attention. Pay attention. Money. If you're going to pick one of two things, prosperity or persecution, and think which one's more dangerous to America, which one do you think it is? So John Piper says when he's talking about this passage, what Piper does when he goes through this passage is he talks about Satan's activity in each one of the three first hearts. You only see him mentioned in the first one, the hard heart. But he's still at work in the second, and he's still at work in the third. Here's what Piper said. If persecution doesn't look like it will work, Satan will try prosperity. What do you think's happening here in America? Because let me tell you something. You want to like hearing this? We're all wealthy. Some of you might feel like, oh, I feel pretty good about that. Some of you might be like, no, you don't understand. We're just barely, we don't have enough food, and the pantry's empty. If you live in America, you are wealthy. I don't care if you make $10,000 a year or $200,000 a year, and if you make more than that, you're definitely wealthy. And most of us think wealthy is, as I know somebody who's wealthy, it's somebody who has a little bit more than me. Let me tell you something. Go to them and ask them if it satisfies. And then they'll tell you, well, yeah, if I had a little bit more... It doesn't matter what the number is, make 25. If I made 50, it would make 50. If I made 80, if I made 100. It's deceitful. if If that's your pursuit, you can't also simultaneously be pursuing the Lord. It's like soil with weeds in it. They get all mixed up with each other. And you can't just pull the weeds out because it rips the other stuff out too. And it doesn't bear any fruit, is what Jesus says. Which, by the way, if that's the characteristic of your life not that you don't you know i've you know coveted somebody's thing i'm not saying one time here and there it's a characteristic of your life you're not a christian because there's no such thing as an unfruitful christian it's an oxymoron i can give a bunch of oxymorons jumbo shrimp those actually exist but that doesn't make any sense does it jumbo shrimp what is that unfruitful christian there are people that go to church that never bear fruit and we might call them an unfruitful christian but according to the scriptures, that's not a real thing, because Christians bear fruit. And so what's the antidote? We talk about you need to be broken in the first one. We talk about you need to be grounded in God's word in the second one. The antidote for this one, if it's money for you. And it could be lots of things, but we'll say money because it's the most relevant to our society. It's give. You have to give. You want to know if your possessions possess you or whether you possess your possessions? Can you give them away? Now, we don't talk about money very much at our church. But we've had people leave our church for talking about money. Do you know why? They're offended. We were talking about their idol. You talked about my God. Don't talk about my God. I'm out of here. I would rather offend you today than you stand before God and be shocked one day. So if you don't give... I'll challenge you, and it's not tipping God, by the way, either. I'm not saying, hey, you know, the United Way comes by once a year, and I send 20 bucks to this missionary, and just leave me alone. Now, if you, you should tithe. Tithe to your church, which I know sounds self serving. I don't care if you're offended. Read the scriptures. It's in there. Tithe to your church, and then you can give beyond that, and now you get into generous giving. And If you're not there, take some baby steps, but know your heart. Don't be unaware. If you want to know what's important do you, look at your checkbook. You'll find out real quick. So the antidote to this one... Give. Give. The next heart is the one we all hope for. It's a healthy heart. That's where Jesus says, what happens in this one is that the word gets planted. He says, others are like seeds sown on good soil. And so far he's shared with us three bad hearts, right? Three conditions that we don't want our heart to be. And the diagnosis of what those are. And what he's about to do is share us three characteristics of a good heart. What do they do? Remember what he said at the very beginning of the parable? Listen. Here he says, they hear the word. This is actually a participle in Greek. They're hearing. They're actively, continually hearing the word. But the hearing here is not like, I hear the words coming out of your mouth. The hearing here is like, I'm, partici- I'm involved in hearing this. There's a difference. And you can ask my wife if there's a difference between when I'm really engaged in talking with her and when I'm just like, I could repeat back to you what you just said to me. And some of you, you can repeat back Bible verses, but have you heard? Have they sunk into your heart? Because that's the next one it gets to you, the next step, the next characteristic. Accept it. And so there are two things you can do when you hear the word you can accept it, you can receive it, or you can reject it. And you have to decide every time you hear the word, receive it or reject it. Any truth that you've heard today, am I going to receive that or am I going to reject that? Good soil receives the word. And then there's the next step. You do something with it and produce a crop. Here's where we make a transition from becoming just this soil that receives the word to being like the farmer who goes out and throws out the seed. You're going to produce a crop. You've got to sow seed, which means you have to tell people about Jesus. So you're not just somebody who comes to church and takes in what the pastor has to say or what somebody sharing a testimony has to say, what the songs say. But you take the word and you go out and you share it with other people. And then what happens? He promises a fruitfulness. Everyone doesn't have the same fruitfulness. You can have the same faithfulness and not have the same fruitfulness, but everybody has fruit. Look at what he says. Some 30, some 60, some even 100 times what was sown in them. So what's the fruit here? There's lots of fruit in the scripture. So you can read this on your own. But you see there's the fruit of the spirit, which is character qualities in your own life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. You see all those things in the scriptures as fruit. You see a fruit of repentance in the book of Matthew, which means when you're convicted of sin, you turn from that sin. That's a fruit in your life. You see a fruit of righteousness when you read through the scripture. Read Romans, you see a fruit of righteousness. Another fruit that you see, and the one that I think is relevant to this passage of scripture, is people that you lead to Jesus. And so you see that. You see it in John chapter 4, Jesus with his disciples, and there's a whole bunch of Samaritans disciples are primarily jewish jesus is jewish they hate each other all those samaritans are about to come to christ none of that stuff matters from the gospel and so what he does is he looks out and sees all these samaritans coming towards him and he says the harvest is plentiful the workers are for you you're invited 12 guys to be some of the workers you can tell them about jesus and then Paul talks about that when he writes to the Thessalonians, the people that he says, I shared with you not only the gospel but my life. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, he says, You are my joy and my crown. What a weird thing to say to a person. You're my crown. Uh <laughs> okay, that's strange. What's he talking about? He's talking about when Jesus comes back someday, we're going to throw our crowns at his feet. Who are you going to put at the feet of Jesus? And say, This is this is who I led to Christ, this is who I impacted for Christ, this is this is my disciple. If it's no one, you're not the last soil. If there's some, it'll be different for each one of us. And we challenge everyone in our church and a member of our church. We have a vision we call 10X, and we've challenged people. Every year for the next 10 years, have one person you're praying will come to Christ, one person you're trying to share with, one person you're caring for. And I read this passage, and I'm like, man, we're, not even, we're so low in our, in our goal, but at least we're focused, at least we're trying to focus on somebody. We're like mediocre soil, right? Like if we just get one. We should have, maybe we should have said three. Who are your three? Who are your six? Who are your ten? Because that would be 30 times, 60 times, 100 times. But maybe it's not 10 years. I don't know. But who is it? It's got to be somebody. And so then I think if we're going to apply this passage, how do I encourage our church family to share Christ more? And there's lots of things I could do. I could tell you about how to share the gospel and give you tactics of how to share the gospel. We've talked about that before. I've done it even on Sunday morning with the whole church. We could talk about how what a big deal eternity is versus the temporary life that we're living right now. We've done that. We do that regularly as a church. We could talk about the difference between heaven and hell. We're all going to live for eternity. Which ways are we going to be? And both places are real. Real people go to both places. We can talk about both places. We've done that. That's real. We could do that. But you know what I think is the most effective thing? Is to tell you about the beauty of Christ. And the more you fall in love with Christ, the more you'll naturally talk about Him. That's what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis gives a great analogy. When he says that, that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value. We just talk about what we value naturally. He goes a little bit further though and says this. So they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And then he gives some examples. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? And we've all done this. We all do this. You do a different stuff. You know, if I watched a game last night and I thought the ending of the game was great, I'm telling you about it, and I want you to join me in thinking that it was a great ending. If you just look at me with a blank thing, I think, hard, heart Got to talk to the next guy. (laughs) Because I want you to love what I love. Now, if my wife has to tell me to tell her she's beautiful, it loses a little something. Just a little marital advice there for you. But if you just think she's beautiful, you'll naturally say it, man. You don't ever have to tell somebody who has a baby to put pictures of their baby on Facebook, do you? I I promise it's not an assignment, those folks that are doing that. They're excited about when a young lady gets engaged, she gets a new ring. She's excited about a ring. You get a new job. You're excited about your job. You think you got a great purchase on some car. You're excited about your car. You're excited about all these different things. What about the savior of your soul? Do you realize we were enemies of God? See, a lot of times I think when we think about the gospel and we think about Jesus dying for our sins on the cross, we think, well, we were his children. We just had the sin problem he had to deal with, and so he went and took care of it. No, we were his enemies. Do you have any enemies? Think about your enemy. And he let his enemy kill his son, because that's what we did when we put him on the cross. So we killed him. It was our sin. What was our sin? We were going our own way. We were doing our own thing. That's why he says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. You've got to turn from that. It's called repentance and turn back to him. And so Jesus let us kill him. No one takes his life. He lays it down. That is love. And he loved you so much that while you were his enemy, he died for you so you could be forgiven, reconciled, changed into his family, um, new, given mercy, given grace. Be his son. Be his daughter. That you'd be adopted, in, the enemy would be adopted into the family and be a child. Does that register with you at all? Good. Because if that just sits on the surface, it's like a flight attendant talking. Be aware. Be aware. Hopefully we would be like the disciples in the book of Acts when they're facing persecution Unlike the shallow soil that would then flee. Now they messed up at times. Nobody was there at the cross. They denied Jesus, but they saw his grace. They saw him work. He kept working. And what do they say in Acts 4.20? When they're threatened, do you stop talking about the name of Jesus? We're going to throw you in prison. We're going to kill you. They say, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And what about you? Are you aware? What kind of soil are you? The unexamined life is not worth living, so don't do it. And so what we're going to do is we conclude right now as a family, we're going to examine our hearts and go before the Lord, ask the Spirit of the Lord to speak to our hearts. Some of you might not be believers and you trust Jesus as your Savior. Some of you are believers. You might have areas you need to repent. Then now is the time. Repent. Don't wait. Some of you just want to get this over with. Then I pray God breaks your heart. And some of you want to take this and and see a 30, a 60, a 100 times what I've just given to you from the Word of God then used in the lives of other people, that is exciting. Let's pray. I'll start us off in prayer, and the worship team will play a little bit instrumentally just to give you some moments to reflect, and if you need to repent, you can. And then they're going to start singing a song. And if you want to continue praying, you continue praying. If you want to stand up and sing, you can stand up and sing. Let's pray together. Father, I come before you. I pray for anybody here right now that needs to trust your son, Jesus Christ. Because they can't deal with their own sin. They can't be good enough. They can't work it off. They can't attend to church enough. None of us can. You say that we've all sinned and we fall short of your glory. But your son, Jesus, died for us. And while we were yet sinners, your son, Jesus, died for us. The wages of our sin is death. And he died that death for us. And he gives us the gift of eternal life. And I pray if anybody needs to trust your son, Jesus, and receive that gift of eternal life, that right now they would. And what you do is you just acknowledge your sin before him. Confess your sin to him. You can do it in your heart as you're praying right now. And then ask Jesus to be your Savior. And Father, I pray for any believers here that we have different areas of our hearts that might be hard. There might be some situation that we've been hardened to you in. Maybe we're obedient in other areas, but we're hardened in in some that you'd break our hearts. My own heart, too, please. Even though I don't want it, I do want it. And if there's any shallow hearts, God, I pray you get them in your word. I pray that you'd get them with a mature Christian that would grow them and, and teach them about what it is to walk with you even in the difficulties and you'd grow their roots down deep. I pray for those that are in love with this world, in love with money. I'll let them be mad at me but bring them to be right with you. I pray we'd repent of anything that's distracting us from you right now. Maybe it's just circumstances. Maybe it's stuff that it's gotten our focus off you. Maybe it is just technology in this life and we just haven't even realized how distracted we are. God, speak to our hearts and make us all, all of us that are believers, impact Christians 30, 60, 100, whatever you want to do through us, God. Do something amazing. Help us to be faithful. And let's let you keep praying.